Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. In this fine hour, I know that we are all possessed with a great emotion. And that is gratitude for the wholesale miracle that has befallen the children of the night. We of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And our compelling thought in these happy days just past has been how best can we serve the ends of this society? In gratitude, we praise God, whose grace has made this thing possible. And immediately, we think of the great number of people and circumstances who have formed this fellowship, who have composed this happy conspiracy. We think of our friends of medicine. We think of our friends of religion. For, as you must know, AA is something like a farmer's three-legged nosebill, supported in one side by what we have learned from medicine, on another corner by what we have drawn from religion. And the other leg, of course, is our own experience of drinking in the cup. A synthetic concept that has made all its points. So to all of our friends of medicine and religion who are present, we gratefully acknowledge our death. And for chance, there are some of the men and women of the press who have been couriers over the past years of our message to all the world. And never a syllable of ridicule or criticism have these ever written of alcoholics and arms. Their work has made possible the recovery of tens of thousands of afflicted ones. So to them, our deep thanks. And we think of the host of other friends we have, the goodwill of the citizens of this town, of those in government, of those in many places, whose goodwill means so much to us. What a fine expression that just was, that four of the citizens should come in here to make us know that we are now respectable ones, to make us feel needed and wanted in this community. In fact, is it not a rather singular circumstance that a gentleman from the sheriff's office should be singing to a bunch of drunks? Did you ever thought of that? (laughs) 
speaking of my own special reasons for gratitude, I find no words to describe my feelings about what has happened here. As I bring you congratulations from AAs all over the earth. For today, the sun never sets upon the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. And these send you their greetings and their brotherhood and their affection. And I thank all who have made this happy event possible. Those whose labors have been unseen, but which have flowered in this wonderful occasion and the hospitality you have extended to me. Alcoholics Anonymous is now about 16 years old, and yet we sense that we have passed through three periods. A period of infancy, a period of adolescence, and now we think we are upon the threshold of maturity and face our future. We are now taking destiny by the hand. So I think it would serve the purposes of this meeting if I led you through the years of infancy during which time we developed the principles and applied the principles upon which individual recovery is found. And then I took you through that exciting period of adolescence when we lived and worked together, during which time the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous was generated. That body of principles of group conduct which we hope may contain us in unity for so long as God shall need it. And I would especially like, then, to emphasize the fact that with us of Alcoholics Anonymous, faith is dead without work. In other words, this is a society of action. Action is the, is the magic word. So I would like to dwell a bit upon the whole idea of service, as we now see it, as it applies to what I hope will be a great and happy future. For some 16 years now, you and I have been watching a great building under construction. To us of alcoholics or not, this is something more than a building. This, to us, is a veritable cathedral of the Spirit, into which 120,000 of us have now entered, and herein have found peace, and a brotherhood, and a freedom, of which we could never have dreamed in yesteryear. So let me take you back now to the very beginning leading you down through our infancy and adolescence to where we are now, marking as we go those important realizations and decisions 
which has so deeply affected our death. In a sense, AA has just been a succession of realizations and decisions taken by individuals and groups of individuals. Let us see what some of those were. In the summer of 1934, I lay in a hospital devoted to the care of alcoholics. It was the end of a long road. And for the first time, I understood the futility of my position. I knew that I was utterly hopeless. I knew that I had no power of my own to go on living. And that verdict had been <coughs> pronounced by science, which had said, the alcoholic is one who has an obsession which condemns him to drink against his will, an increasing physical sensitivity that condemns him in time to go mad or die. And those terrible facts in my case had come home to me in flood time as I lay there on my bed. So, without realizing it, I was having a realization that is absolutely indispensable to each one of us before we may make any progress to recover. A realization which has been shared by every alcoholic in this room. I had hit spot and knew it. I was not the only one who shared this realization. Downstairs in the hospital, a famous doctor was talking to Lois, my dear wife. And like many a woman before and since, she was asking these questions. She was saying, Doctor, for years, Bill has wanted to stop. He has desperately wanted to stop. He has been willing to do anything. Now, Dr. Bill was always a man of great willpower. In other matters, why doesn't his willpower work now? Why can't he stop that? And, Doctor, how serious is this business? And the good man was compelled to tell her that my habit of drinking had slowly turned into an obsession, a veritable insanity, which condemned me as much to drink as a kleptomaniac is condemned to steal. And that my physical condition had deteriorated, perhaps my brain already a little, and that that was the age-old dilemma of alcoholism. Unlike many another woman, Lois said, well, what does that mean, Doctor? Gentleman that he was, he had to tell her it means, Mrs. Wilson, 
that you must soon put him away somewhere. Else he will go mad or die. So this realization of hopelessness, now so important to every one of our society and embodied in our the very first step of the A program, came not only to me, but to one very near and dear. How well you women and the husbands of alcoholics know. Leaving the hospital, I was very badly frightened. For a time, great vigilance kept me sober. But little by little, as I felt better, my fear wore away. And in November of that year, the obsession had me. There I was, alone, drinking in my kitchen. Lois working in a department store to support me. I no longer dared go in the streets, lest I be taken up by the police. Drinking a fifth of gin to be high per day, two to be tight, and three to be drunk. Drunk most of the time. Continuous. Could not stop. Well, at that juncture, a friend I hadn't seen in many years had a realization, and he took the decision. He, too, had been visited by this dire malady. I had known him to be a hopeless one for a long time. Suddenly the telephone rang. Here he was on the other end of the wire. I knew at once he was sober. I'd never known him to be in New York City, so. And I said, come over, Abby. My friend, I'd love to see you. We'll drink together. And we'll talk about the good old days. Ah, what a significant remark. The good old days, indeed. For you see, to me, the present was unbearable. And there was to be no future. Yes, we drink together. And talk about the good old days. Well, I met him at the door. And by some psychic sense, I saw at once that he had something more than just surprise. I couldn't make it out. He came in, sat at the kitchen table. I pushed over a full tumbler of gin. He said, no thanks. I said, Eddie, what's got to do? You want the water wagon? Oh, no, no, I'm just not drinking. I was puzzled. I was disappointed. We visited a little bit. I was very curious. I said, come, my friend. What's got into it? Simply and smilingly, he looked at me and said, I've got religion. I shuddered. I said, now, this poor boy has substituted alcohol, religious insanity for alcoholic insanity. Too bad. He may as well hit me in the face with a wet mop. For I was one of those agnostics. I was one 
whose modern education had told him there is no God. Oh, the poor fellow. Well, one had to be polite. So I said, well, let me, uh, what kind of religion have you got? Oh, he said, I wouldn't really call it religion. You might call it the religion of common sense. I just picked up some ideas from a group of people. One of them happened to be a drunk like myself. And here they are. Very simple ideas. None of them knew. He said, under their advice, I got honest with myself as I had never been before about my personal I quit the accursed business of living alone and confessed my defects to another person in confidence. Gave me a lot of relief. Then I made a survey of my broken relationships and of the damages my drinking had done. And I went through all those concerns to make amends, to ask forgiveness, being careful not to confess their sins. And then these friends had advised me that uh, I ought to learn of a new kind of giving, kind of giving that demands no reward. And he said, Bill, here is the final point of my simple way of life. I discovered that I could not put these principles into daily operation and make them work on my drinking and on my problem of living unless I ask God for help. Now, city, I know that's an, uh, you're an agnostic, Magia, but that's that. Well, as you see, my friend came with no new idea at all. I certainly heard about honesty, and I'd heard about confession and restitution. Under faith without works is dead. I'd even heard about people praying, didn't like the idea. Nothing new. Yet somehow, these simple principles presented by him struck me with tremendous force. Why? And now we uncover another fundamental of AA. One alcoholic was talking to another. I knew that he had been a denizen of that strange world in which I was living. I knew that it was a hopeless world. And I believed it when he said that he had been released from his, from his obsession. That he was just no longer on the waterway. As he put it, it seems as though my obsession had been taken from me. And yet I was revolted at this idea of a God. Well, very wisely, he didn't try to evangelize me. He just said he thought he'd pay me a call. Let me know what had happened to him. Thereby exercising what our theological friends call the virtual proof. A lesson we've had to well learn in AA. And presently he was gone. I continued to drink for the next week or two. But in no waking hour could I get the vision of my friend out of my mind as he sat across the table setting out these simple principles. And at length I thought to myself, well, after all, who are beggars to be choosers? 
You, Bill Wilson, are just like a cancer victim. If you had cancer, you wouldn't expect the cure to yourself. You would depend upon any principle, any surgeon, any physician that would check the growth of those terrible cells. And well do you already know that your alcoholism is a cancer of the emotions, a cancer of the mind. And if there be such a thing, a cancer of the soul. So who are you to say there is no God? Who are you to say how you will get well? Just like the cancer patient, you had better be dependent on whatever physician there is that can help So I started for the hunt. I thought I'd have the doctor sober me up. I would have to look at this religious idea through completely sober eyes. I mustn't have any emotional conversion nonsense. I presented myself to 93 Central Park West, my old drying out joint. On the way up there, I had got very tight and deep. The drunks here will tell you why. On our way to be cured, for the last time, we always get stiff. May never get another drink, you see. Through the fog, I could see the doctor. And I waved my bottle at him. And I says, Doctor, at last I've got something. And very sadly, the old man looked at me. And said, my boy, I'm afraid you have got something. Better go upstairs and go to bed. Well, I had come to the hospital early. Delirium tremens wouldn't have caught up with me for another month. So in three or four days' time, I'm free of liquor and any sedative given. But now I'm horribly depressed. I kept thinking about my friend, but again I rebelled about the great physician. Suddenly there he stands in the door. Here it is early in the morning. My first thought was, just as thousands of A's have since thought, this man practices what he preaches. Then I became a little fearfully evangelized. But no, he's proven. He said, Bill, I heard you were up here. Thought I'd come up and see how you were. And he made me ask him again. What were the terms of his deliverance? And quite simply he stated them, well, he said, Bill, I just got honest with myself. Talked it out with another person in confidence. Cleared away the debris of my past as well as I could. And trying to help other people without any demand for reward. Why I'm up here. Helps me as much as I you. And he said, I pray that God is iron standing. And that's all he had to say about. Soon he was gone. And then there fell upon me the greatest realization of my whole life. My depression increased. Seeing that I was in the bottom, 
of an infinite pit. And at last I cried out, saying, No, I am willing to do anything. Then, with no hope at all, I exclaimed, And if there is a God, will he show himself? Then I was granted one of those sudden, strange experiences. It seemed to me that the whole room lit up with a great light. I was filled with an ecstasy that no man could describe. I suddenly realized that I was free. In my mind's eye, it seemed as though I stood on a mountain. And a great clean wind was blowing. And I knew at once that it was not of air, but of spirit. At length, the ecstasy subsided. Of course, I am still on the bed. But now I lie in a new world. I felt at once with the universe. A great peace stole over. And I thought to myself, this is what preaching is. This is the God of preaching. Oh, I lay there a long time in this wonderful state. Then my modern education got a hold of me. I began to be frightened. I panicked. I said, oh, this must be hallucination. Can this be real? I'd better call the doctor. Have him examine me. He's a good alienist. So when he came, and at this moment the destiny of our society hung by a very slender thread indeed. I told him what had happened as best I could. Most doctors would have said, oh, well, Bill, just a little hallucinosis, soon pass off. But no, this skeptical man of science, being a great human being, listened to the test. Asked me a lot of questions. And finally he said, no, my boy. He said, you're not crazy. He said, there has been some great psychic upheaval in you. Somehow you are different. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe you had one of those conversion experiences. That once in a blue moon, sobers up alcohol. But I think you have something, my boy. And whatever it is, you'd best hang on to it. It's so much better than what had you only one hour ago. So I've been hanging on ever since. There has been no relapse since that day. And so have a lot of other people. Now, you friends who come in here may say, do all of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous have an experience like this? And my answer is, yes, they do. They all have an experience that enables them to do that which they couldn't do before. In most cases, it comes on very, very slowly. What happened to me in six minutes happened to them in six weeks or six months or even a year. 
But eventually all of us become conscious of the presence of a greater power who can do for us what we cannot do alone. So that is a common central realization. Well, such a realization, of course, calls for decision. And I made the same decision that thousands of AA participants The decision was, I wanted to help other alcoholics find this release. This release which had come on these very simple terms, yet with such mysterious power. So I began working with alcohol, frantic, in the mission. This doctor had risked to his reputation. Let me come back and work in his heart. There wasn't any result called at this point. When I told of my sudden experience, the alcoholics would just tap their heads and walk off. Could blame them, could In fact, the cynical still refer to that experience as Bill Wilson's hot flash. Well, I feared that I had a little sense of divine appointment. I was trying to preach. And we yet lacked another element. So after a season of failure, my doctor, good old Dr. Silkworth, who passed away recently, said, Bill, shouldn't you emphasize the idea much more in this work that alcoholism is an illness? A fatal progressive illness. And then it began to dawn upon me that that might open up the drunk to such an experience as I had had, or to some enabling thing that would re- remove their obsession. In other words, if one drunk projected it upon another, that not only here is the release from alcoholism, but also that it is a fatal progressive disease, an obsession of the mind coupled to an allergy of the body. That message coming from one alcoholic to another might strike him deep and humble him enough so that the grace of God might expel his message. So I began to emphasize this idea of illness very much. At that juncture, my wife's relatives began to have begun to say, well, when is this guy going to go to work? When is he going to quit being a missionary? When is he going to get a lawyer out of that damn department? Sir? Well, under such loading, I began to go over to Wall Street and sit around in brokerage houses, which made it look like I was involved. Sitting there one day, I fell into conversation with a stranger. Curiously enough, that led to a business deal. You see, my old business friends would have none of them. This business deal took me to Akron, Ohio. I had insinuated myself by accident in the middle of a big proxy fight. Suddenly it looked as though I had a controlling interest in a situation which might have made me president of a little co- company out there. All elated now, I go out to Akron. I think, well, God is rewarding me for all this good work I've done, although not think one single drunk was sober yet. Arrived in Akron, the business deal fell through. The other side put more proxies on the table. 
My newfound friends disappeared in the direction of New York, left me in the Mayflower Hotel with $10 bill in my pocket. And great ways I felt pity and anger swept over. Suddenly I realized that I was in danger of getting nothing. I began to panic. I began to walk up and down that lobby looking in the bar room at one end, and at the other end, absentmindedly at the church director. Well, as I remarked earlier, I don't know what this AA would have done without Clint. So I called up the church. I told him of my need to find another alcoholic to work with. I told him that I needed another alcoholic as much as that alcoholic could need me. Well, the clergyman was a little nonplussed. His experience had been that one alcoholic at a time was enough. Why bring two of them together? Anyhow, he gave me a list of people I might inquire among in my search for an alcoholic. I began to call them on the telephone. They'd all see me in church Sunday, or they were going away for the week. But my need was urgent. But none were prepared to fill it, excepting the very last one on the list, a non-alcoholic. I called her. It was a famous name in Athens. I was very reluctant. I explained my need, and she said, yes. I know what you were talking about. I am not an alcoholic. But my life got in an awful game. One I couldn't get out of. I understand what you mean by spiritual awakening. You come straight out here. So here came a non-alcoholic friend. One who cared about it. One who understood. One who would take time. And I told her my story. Straightway she said, there is a doctor here in this town. He used to be on the staff of the city hospital. Wonderful chap. Everything is falling apart. He's lost his post. His bank, his bank is about to foreclose his house. His wife is half an invalid from these years of drinking. Dr. Bob Ed. Should I call them up? I think I will. So my new friend Henrietta goes to the phone. Gets hold of dear Anne, Dr. Bob's wife, says that there's a stranger from New York who thinks he has a cure for alcoholism. Well, Anne said this is very interesting, Henrietta, but Dr. Bob is just from home. It's Mother's Day. He has brought in a potted plant, out of deference to me. The potted plant is on the table. But alas, Henrietta, he is so potted that he is on the floor. We can't get here today. Well, not a whiff discouraged. My friend Henrietta said, how about tomorrow? Let's all have supper here. So at five o'clock the next day, Dr. Bob and Ann entered that house. Henrietta put us off in the library. Dr. Bob said he could stay only five minutes. He was very shaky as he needed a drink. We talked for five hours. And this time it was on a different stage. Because now I realized that I needed that man as much as he could possibly need me. And right then and there, we of AA think, the spark that was to become Alcoholics Anonymous was struck. Why you see my 
first friend, later fell in the wayside, and has not been picked up yet. Ann Smith then said to me, Bill, uh, would you like to come and live with us for a few weeks? You can keep an eye on Dr. Bob. You could keep an eye on you. Maybe you could revive your business here. So I went to live with Dr. Bob and Ann in what to many of us is a really hallowed home. Presently, Dr. Bob said, well, Bill, if only in self-protection, don't you think we'd better be doing some work with some drugs? I said, yes. So he called the city hunter, got the receiving wall, spoke with a nurse there, he knew, said that a friend was in from New York, thought he had a cure for alcoholism. At this juncture, the good doctor flushed deep red, for the nurse had said to him, well, doctor, why don't you try that on yourself? Well, doctor said, uh, yes, but if you got a prospect down there, that's a part of the process. We want to work on another alcoholic. Said the nurse, we have got a dance. He just came in here, he used to be on the city council, well-known lawyer around Akron. He's gone all the pieces. He's been in the city hospital six times in the last four months. He can't even get out of here and home without getting tired. I'm pretty sure he wants to stop. He's got the DTs right now. He's whacked one of the nurses' eyes. We got him loaded with paraldehyde and strapped down. How would that one do you, doctor? So I said, Dr. Bob, well, put him in a private room. We'll be down as soon as he clears up. This is the medication you should get. A little later... Dr. Bob and I saw a sight which tens of thousands of us have since seen, and God willing, hundreds of thousands of us shall still. It was the sight of the man on the bed. It was the sight of the man on the bed who does not yet know that he said well. The man on the bed in this case was no optimist. He listened as we told our stories of drinking, of the simple precepts of our recovery, of our relief, and of course we bore in, in on him hard about alcoholism, the fatal illness. At length the man on the bed shook his head and he said, no, it's too late for me. I don't even dare go out of here. Oh yes, you fellas have been through the mill all right. But I guess you're only in the ringer up to your knees. With me, it's up to my neck. It's too late. Don't talk to me about religion either. I used to be a deacon in the church. Funny thing, you know, it is. I still got a kind of a faith in God. But I guess God hasn't got any faith in me. I don't know what the matter is. I can't stop. Well, we said, may we come back tomorrow? Oh, gosh, he said, this is a lonesome business. He said, I'd love to have you come back. So on the morrow we came. And the man's wife sat at the foot of his bed. We heard her saying as we entered the room, Why, husband, what is not it? What makes you so different? And seeing us in the door, he pointed and said, Yes, they are the ones 
They are the ones who understand. And then in happy excitement, he called about the long hours of the night before. Finally, the thought had come, well, maybe if they have been granted relief from this thing, maybe I can have that gift too. And he began to have hope. And then, as he became entirely willing to follow our simple precept, he felt a singular sense of relief and faith and confidence, which now had swelled into such a great pride that he said to his wife, My dear, fetch me my cloak. We're going to get up and get out. So AA number three rose from his bed, walked out of that place, never to drink again. And that was in June 1935. Although we realize it's not. First AA group of us was not. I stayed on for a few weeks more. Three of us worked with other alcoholics. Mostly failures, but one or two did turn their faces to the light. Returning to New York in the fall of that year, now a little more tasty, a little more experienced, a group took shape there. Then came the must tell what we knew to the million who knew not. How were we to do that? It had taken us nearly three years to produce these recoveries. How are we to transmit this message? Could it call it snail face? We realized that within gunshot of where we sat, people were dying like flies. People said there were a million alcoholics in America and three or four million more in the nation. How could we let them know? Well, naturally, we thought in terms of hospitals. Hospitals didn't want drunk. They never paid their bills. They never got well. You couldn't blame the hospitals. So we thought, well, our society will have to have a string of hospitals. And then we thought, well, our older members will have to go to other localities to start groups. And surely we could have some kind of a book. So that our strength and people on tape. So that it won't get garbage. So that those million who don't know can at least read about what happened to us. So, that very evening, the Akron group met with Dr. Bob and me, and we took a decision. Only the objection of some, that I was to go back to New York and raise money so that we might have a chain of hospitals, we might uh, have members, older experienced ones, go to other cities, and so that we might have a book. One day I go to my brother-in-law with an imaginary ulcer attack. I'm grousing how stingy the very rich were when it came to drunks. He said, why don't you talk to Shirley Wynn here in my office, former health commissioner. Shirley gave me a fine reception. He said, yes, he said, this will need a great deal of money. I can see that. Next thing you know, uh, 
He says, why not the Rockefeller Foundation? I shook my head. He said, oh, no. He said, the fellow for you to see is John D. Rockefeller personally. Well, I said, Dr. Wynn, I don't wish to be facetious, but could you not also give me an introduction to the Prince of Wales? He might be interested, too. No, he said, you should see John D. Rockefeller personally. Then here were... Here was this thread of destiny, so thin, so tenuous. My brother-in-law stands there scratching his head, and he says, When I was in high school, I knew a girl, and she had an uncle, probably an old man now. I think he's a friend of the Rockefeller family. I don't know that he'll remember me. Shall I call him up? Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.